Welcome to the One Player Podcast. I'm your host Albert, and this is Episode 3, The Cooperative Game Megasode. That's right, I said Megasode. Not sure what that means, but we're going to talk about cooperative games, and I'm going to give a history of cooperative games as it relates to, to solitaire gaming. And I'm also going to then, I'm then going to review The Lord of the Rings and The Lord of the Rings The Card Game, both published by Fantasy Flight Games. On with the show. So in case anybody's not familiar, cooperative games are games where all the players are working together as a team. Um, there's two branches of cooperative games, I guess. In one, there is one player that that is opposed to the rest of the, to the team. And usually these are dungeon crawl games and maybe like a dungeon master or something like that. That person is trying to stop the players from winning. All the other players are trying to beat him. Those generally don't work for solo play since uh, it usually depends on secret information. The other branch of solitaire games, the ones that do work, all the players are working together to beat the, the game itself. A couple exceptions are going to be games with a, a traitor, say Shadows over Camelot or Battlestar Galactica. The rest of the games all do pretty work pretty well. So what I've done is I've gone and made a list of all the cooperative games that fit into that category of working pretty well. And uh, I've sorted them by year, and I'm kind of going to give a review of what's gone on over the years, starting with the first game published in 1979 called Death Maze. The game was designed by uh, Greg Kostikian. It was uh, published by SPI. It's a one through six player dungeon crawling game in which tiles are laid out as you're exploring the game. Sounds similar to some of the new games out these days. Anyway, that was published in 1979, and that was the only game that year or that decade. After that, we hit the 80s, where there's quite a few games published. There's uh, 13 games in the 1980s, starting with Intruder in 1980 and Citadel of Blood in 1980. Citadel of Blood, I believe, was a used the same system as Death Maze. Um, after that was The Wreck of the BMS Pandora. Time Tripper, Sherlock Holmes Consulting Detective, which won a Spiel des Jahres Award. I have played that. That's a fun game to play solo or cooperatively. I played it with my wife, and we worked together and kind of read the story. And it felt more like an interactive story than a game, I think. Uh, after that, Wizards. Wizards was published in 1982 by Avalon Hill. It uses a modular hex board. The players are working together to explore the island and, and do little mini quests to, to avoid the island from basically sinking. However, it is not fully cooperative as in the, at the end game you're racing against each other trying to collect six gem fragments and take them to the Hydroid. Still, that probably works pretty well and it does say it's for one through six players, so maybe you could take one adventure by itself. Okay, in 1983, Nightmare House and Dragon Riders of Pern were published. In Nightmare House, players are trying to defeat an evil entity um, in the house called Darkholm Manor. It's technically for two to five players, but it has a solitaire variant and was published in Ares Magazine. After that, we have The Queen's Park Affair published in 84. That's a standalone game that could also be used in expansion for Sherlock Holmes Consulting Detective. I think it's basically more adventures. The next game in '86 is called Max, and actually, that's a game that shouldn't have been on this list. I should, I would have taken it out if I'd noticed it sooner. 
it's a kids game and a lot of kids games are cooperative in that all the kids take turns doing whatever the goal is finding the missing pieces for their board and the game ends when everybody finishes their board and everybody wins together the cooperative only thing is people don't want the kids to play against each other and you know start whining about who's winning and losing so after that one, we hit 1987. We've been going through the 80s pretty quickly. Uh, Arkham Horror, the original edition, was published in 87. It was designed by Richard Nanius and a couple other names. Charlie Crank, Lynn Willis, and Sandy Peterson. Sandy Peterson was the designer of the Call of Cthulhu role-playing game published by Chaosium. This game is also published by Chaosium. Um... That game, of course, spawned uh, the Arkham Horror, published in uh, 2005, uh, published by Fantasy Flight Games. That's been a big hit and has had lots of expansions. After Arkham Horror, Aliens was published in 1989, and finally Advanced Hero Quest, also in 89. So the cooperative games really were popular. The, the hit they came out in 1979 and were pretty popular for the whole decade. The 1990s were, relatively speaking, depressing. There's a uh, let's see, three, four, five, six, seven games published in those ten years, starting with Star Wars: Escape from the Death Star, The Secret Door, Minion Hunter, Bram Stoker's Dac Dracula, uh, a movie tie-in game, which doesn't look that good, uh, Army of Darkness, Warhammer Quest, and Princess Ryan Star M Marines. So there wasn't a lot. The choices were pretty slim. The average rating tends to be pretty consistent with everything published in the 80s. And honestly, most of the cooperative games published. Somewhere between 5 and 6.5 and or so. So that last millennium ended pretty dismally with very little getting published and generally speaking stuff wasn't that good. The new millennium started pretty much the same with Charmed, The Book of Shadows, published in 2001, with a, an average rating of 3.59. And that was four years after the last game in the 90s. If we ignore that game, the next game is When Darkness Comes, published in 2002 by Twilight Creations. It's a horror game which can be played cooperatively. It can be played cooperatively with competition to, to be the winner at the end, the person who finishes the, the quest. Or it could be played with a game master. After that, we've got Vanish Planet, published in 2003, in which the players are working together to stop the six worlds from getting destroyed by some weird expanding gas from outer space. It's a it's a fun game. It's challenging, but after a little while, you're able to figure it out, and the fun kind of goes away. By the way, I forgot to mention in the the first decade of the Millennium, there were 19 games published, 19 cooperative games, which is a big jump up from the seven of the previous decade. Anyway, after Vanish Planet, in the same year anyway, in 2003, there's another or When Darkness Comes expansion called The Most Dangerous Game. This one's a, a spy version. Think James Bond. The theme's very different, but it's all the same mechanics. And for the most part, the same rules. Um, two years later, we got the next batch of games. Arkham Horror by Richard Lamis was the update of the, the game from the 80s, published by Fantasy Flight. And Silent War, which I thought was a solitaire game, but it's listed as a one or two player game. 
it's a submarine war game and Dungeon Bash also published in 2005 and then we jump to 2007 where we got Dead of Night, Dungeon Plungeon and ooh hang on a second I, I missed one in 2004 the Lord of the Rings by Reynard Canitia was published right after the When Darkness Comes uh, I, was, I think that was kind of a groundbreaking game it really made cooperative games suddenly grab everybody's attention and suddenly after that a lot more cooperative games started getting published anyway back to 2007 2008 in 2008 pandemic was published almost won the Spiel des Jahres award that year or maybe I think it almost won it in 2009 um, space alert Ghost Stories, Red November, and Cheese Chasers were all published in 2008. So that was another big year because a lot of those games were really popular, really good games. In Space Alert, players are in a spaceship tr trying to, I think, trying to save it from destruction or something. Honestly, I haven't played this game. What I do know is it uses a CD to help narrate the story and add sound effects and direct the game. In pandemic, players are trying to stop virus outbreaks around the world and they're running around the board trying to keep them from spreading too far, but as they're doing this, the virus is just keeps having outbreaks all over the place. It's There are five characters each of the players can choose from, and each of the characters has different abilities that so affects how the game plays out. And the game only supports up to four players, so one of those characters will always be out of the game, at least one. Then there's Ghost Stories. In that game, uh, a town is being haunted, an evil spirit has taken over, and he has other ghosts spreading all over the place and killing off characters, non-player characters. The, the game is more abstract than I had expected. It's a very tense game, though. It can be a lot of fun, and I think there's one or two expansions for it. In Red November, the players are sailors. They're in a gnomish submarine that has crashed and is starting to have problems happen all over the place, fires and floodings in different chambers. And the players are running around the the submarine trying to stop all the crises and survive to the end, at which point they would be rescued. This game that is cooperative but it does have the chance for a trader, however that is totally optional and doesn't change the game any if it what am I trying to say? It doesn't impact solitaire play because you don't have to use that uh, trader. If you're playing with two more players, one person can choose to be the trader. And, but that's totally at a player's choice if and when it happens. In 2009, we've got Castle Panic, D-Day Dice, and The Isle of Dr. Necro. Oh, and All Things Zombie, Better Dead Than Zed. So that last decade had 19 games published, starting with mostly dungeon crawls and ending with all sorts of cooperative games, lots of variety. The new decade, which we're a year and a half into, so far has 20 games published, or at least announced, which is just a huge amazing jump. I think I'm just going to shoot through this list too. we got Dungeons and Dragons Castle Ravenloft game in 2010, which has uh, spawned two other versions. Defenders of the Realm, Space Hulk the card game, I really haven't talked about this a lot, but there's a whole bunch of games that are solitaire friendly or, or solitaire specific. 
in which the players or space marines are going into a ship and trying to rid of an alien infestation. Aliens, the movie game is one, and there's a few others. The names escape me right now. Um, Space Hulk is one of these. You control a space, uh, set of space marines from the Warhammer 40k universe, which have gone in to destroy a bunch of aliens. The game can be really hard and can be really tense. When your marines are doing well, it's great and it's a lot of fun, and you're just bashing, destroying everything left and right. But as soon as they start dying, they quickly just drop like flies. It's it's amazing how fast that mission can fall apart as your marines start dying. It's actually even fun to watch it happen. That's a really neat game. All Things Zombie, the board game. Honestly, I'm not sure what the difference between that one and the other All Things Zombie game I mentioned earlier are. Also, Steel Wolves was published in 2010, which is uh, another game in the Silent War series. Onirim was published, which I talked about in the first episode. Walkstar, Target Earth, Zombie in My Pocket, which started as a solitaire print-and-play game and was picked up by a publisher in 2010. Mosqueteer du Roi, Three Musketeers, uh, Twelve Realms, Dungeon Crawler. Here's one that snuck in. It's a promo card for Castlevania Loft. That shouldn't be here. The Lord of the Rings. Okay, in 2011, now the Lord of the Rings card game was published. The second game we'll be talking about tonight. Uh, another Dungeons and Dragons game, Wrath of Ashardalon, by Z-Man Games. Yggdrasil. Yggdrasil. Conquest of Planet Earth, the Space Alien game, Star Trek Expeditions, the next Dungeons and Dragons game, and Gears of War, the board game. So there's just lots of stuff and lots of variety and things to choose from. Hopefully the rest of the decade continues to be as productive. So no doubt that list was long and overwhelming for you. It was for me too. But cooperative games I think are really worth thinking about for solo play. They're designed, well a lot of them are designed to, to be played against a system and they're designed such as tension stays high and the game stays really stressful. That generally equals a lot of fun. Because they're designed for one or more players, you could choose to, to go in and play a single character or, or take the role of two or more players. And either way usually works pretty well solitaire. Interestingly, unlike the solitaire games, the solitaire only games, most of these seem to be non-war games. There's only a couple exceptions I remember. The uh, Silent War and Steel Wolves and probably a few games from the 80s, a couple from the 90s. But if you're not a war gamer, you have a lot more options in this category. Okay, I think that's it for my timelines. Let's head into the reviews. First up is Lord of the Rings by Reynard Knizia. It was published by Fantasy Fight Games. The art is by John Howe. He's a, a famous illustrator known for doing Lord of the Rings art, Tolkien art. Earlier I said the game was published in 2004. Turns out I was lying. It's actually published in 2000. Not sure how I made that mistake. I should know it was in 2004. Um, but there you have it. That does change what I said about the timeline. Turns out the first modern cooperative game was actually published 10 years ago, and then there was a, a slow period for 5 or 6 years where not much was published, all up until 2006-2007, where the sun was another big boom. Kinda seems like maybe this game was uh, ahead of its time, and 
in that respect. I do think it was published uh, to take advantage of the fact that a new movie was about to be released at that point. Anyway, in this game, the players take the role of the hobbits and they're trying to get the ring to Mount Doom without getting caught. Fantasy Flight recently republished a game this year, as a matter of fact, in a smaller box. I haven't seen that, but I assume it brings the same contents as the original game. There were three expansions published for it. The first one is called Friends and Foes. Um, the next one is Sauron, which is intended as a for two-player games, and the third one is Battlefields. I don't really know much about that one. I've seen the pictures of the boards, and it looks like a flowchart. Not sure how it works, unfortunately. So in the box you get five Hobbit uh, pawns, or five figures, I guess, a bunch of cards, a bunch of counters, uh, the one ring, a Sauron figure that sort of looks like this abstract eye tower, and six white cones that look like incense cones. Oh, and also uh, a main board to track the adventure, and four two double-sided scenario boards that you'll play on. So when you play the game, you set up the, the main board with a track, which will, you place the pawns on it, and they start at the left edge of the board, and then you place Sauron at the right edge of the board. And there's 15 spaces total. And there's also a, another track in the top that, that describes the, the path the hobbits take from the Shire all the way to Mount Doom. There are seven spaces total starting with Bag End. As you move from space to space, you're either instructed to do things like draw cards or roll a die, which is generally bad. At best, nothing happens. More likely, something bad will happen. You'll either be discarding cards or moving some of the pieces on the 15 space track called the uh, Corruption Track. Either you're moving one Hobbit towards darkness or you're moving Sauron towards the hobbits. If at any point a hobbit passes or lands on Sauron's space, then that hobbit has been caught and is out of the game. As long as that hobbit doesn't have the ring, the game keeps going. Anyway, the other spaces on the other track, the seven space track, represent the scenario boards. When you land on those, you go to one of the scenario boards and you play that out. And then if nobody, if you're still in the game, you haven't been caught by Sauron, you go back to the, to the main board and go on to the next space and see what happens. On the scenario boards, here you're mainly drawing tiles that will... Let me step back. On the scenario board, there are generally three or four paths that you have to go along. Two of them are pretty short, or three of them are pretty short. The last one is always a long track with maybe 20 spaces on it. These tracks are called activity lines. I'll mention these again in a bit, so don't forget them. Each track is marked with a symbol, either a tree, a sword and shield, a footsteps, or a handshake. These same symbols are found in the cards and event tiles, and you'll play the cards and event tiles to help you move along the track. The board also has a an event track that's six spaces. Most of the spaces are bad. There's a couple decent ones. The farther you go down the spaces, the worse it's going to get for you. So starting with the ring bearer, 
Players will take turns drawing event tiles, acting upon them, and then maybe playing cards. If the event tile is bad, you have to act upon it, either moving down the event path and, act, and taking that event, or maybe discarding cards again or, or rolling the die. After that, you got to draw another event tile and act upon it. If it's bad, draw another one again. And keep repeating until you draw a good event tile, which will move you along the activity line in one of the paths. After that, the player has a choice of playing one or two cards, which will move the pawns in the activity line. Or if they choose not to play a card, they could either draw two cards or move themselves back on the corruption track. Do you have all that? There's still a lot more. When you play cards, they, like I said before, generally they have a symbol in the card, maybe two symbols, in a couple cases three symbols, and the symbols match the one of the activity lines. If you play that card, you move forward in the activity line equal to the number of symbols on your card. A couple of the cards have special effects, like they might let you give a card to another player or possibly ignore an event, but there aren't that many of them, probably, I don't know, 5% or so. So each face on the activity line has a symbol on it. It either has a shield, or a sun, a heart, or a ring. There's a bunch of shield counters, and there's also a few counters with the, those three symbols. Sun counters, ring counters, and heart counters. When you land on one of those spaces on the activity line, you draw the appropriate counter. Those counters, the, the life counters, you could use to trade in for Gandalf cards, which I haven't told you about. Those are really powerful cards that have special effects, and they're one-time use, and they're five cards. They're each worth five uh, life counters, though, so they're kind of hard to get. The other three counters, each character has to have all three counters at the end of the scenario. If they don't, they get moved forward in the corruption track for each counter they're missing. Okay, so I think that's everything about the scenario board, and generally everything about the game. Like I said, there's a lot. It's it's not a super complex game, but th there's quite a few different systems that you need to manage that all interact with each other, and that's where the the challenge in the game comes from. You need to manage the cards in your hand. As you're playing, you're going to be using those up, and you want to make sure you use them on the right track. I, I forgot to mention, some of the cards are wild cards. You can play them to represent any activity line. So you gotta choose which line you wanna play it on, or do you wanna save it for another scenario board? As you're trying to manage your hand, you're gonna end up dealing with events that force you to discard some of these cards, which make more tough choices. Or they're gonna force you to either move forward in the activity, on the, I'm sorry, in the corruption track, or move Sauron closer to the hobbits. And then you're deciding, you know, do I need to spend a turn to not play any cards and instead move my hobbit back along the corruption track or instead draw some more cards because I'm running low. Some of the cards will make you choose either roll the die or discard a bunch of cards and life counters or something like that. So then you gotta pick, you know, which is the worst choice or maybe one of your choices is to roll the die instead. So you're trying to manage all these things and you can never keep up with everything. It's always a challenge and it's always kind of stressful.
which makes the game really neat. It, it adds a lot to the feel of the of the Lord of the Rings. Um, as I've described the game, you can tell it's pretty abstract. There isn't a lot of theme in the gameplay, and yet the game feels really thematic. Because of the art and because of the descriptions of all the events, it, it just all goes well, really well together. With the Friends and Foe expansion ads is another double-sided scenario board, so it has two more scenarios, which are Bree and Isengard, and it also adds, adds Foe cards. The Foe cards, every time that you draw an event tile and on your turn, the first event tile, if it happens to be a good one, then you're also going to have to play a Foe card on the board, or if an event happens that says to discard cards. Instead of discarding cards, you're not going to play full cards. At any point of, of at the end of a person's turn, if there's eight full cards on the board, the game ends. The the way to get rid of the foes are either by on your turn instead of playing cards, you now have a third choice of removing the leftmost foe, or also all the foes have a condition under which you can remove them. They might say discard three life counters or discard your entire hand um, move along the activity path or something like that so they they're all forcing you to use your cards and do other things that you really were hoping to save for something else yeah it just it doesn't supposedly it doesn't make the game harder but it adds to the complexity so what do I think about this game? I think it's a lot of fun. Um, it's abstract, it's a little bit dry, but there's always tension as you're playing and you feel like you're getting bigger and bigger trouble. It's very satisfying when you manage to win and when you don't you still you still feel like you had to put up a good fight. If you like The Lord of the Rings you'll enjoy the game for the theme alone. If you don't like The Lord of the Rings and you don't mind the theme You'll, you'll probably still find the gameplay fun if, if you like abstract games. Highly themed abstract games, maybe? I don't know. So that's it for The Lord of the Rings by Reynard Knizia. Next up is Lord of the Rings, the card game. Designed by Nate French, also published by Fantasy Flight Games. This game was released uh, this year, about two months ago. It is uh, designed for one or two players. This is a living card game. If you're not familiar with what that is, it's basically the same as a collectible card game. The difference, instead of ha having to buy random packs of cards with different rarities of cards in a pack, when you buy an expansion, it brings all the cards from that expansion an equal number of cards. So you always know what you get kind of puts everybody in equal footing as far as playing the game goes. In my mind, it, a living card game is still this, a collectible card game. An LCG is a CCG. The only difference is it's kind of it's cheaper. I think they're the same because really what CCGs and LCGs have in common is that they all have deck building involved. As a meta game, before you play, you figure out what cards you want to use in your deck, put it together and then go play usually against another person uh, up until now this is the the Lord of the Rings card game is the first cooperative CCG I think from here forward I'm just going to call this a CCG so the game brings three sets of quest cards 
each set of quest cards represents an entire quest and the goal of the game is to to go through a quest one card at a time there's also 84 encounter cards which are the things you're going to be fighting against either monsters or locations you have to explore or bad events and there's 120 player cards which are the cards you're going to use to play with to fight these things and 12 hero cards which are powerful characters you have on your side that are always on the table and always there for you to use the more heroes you're playing with the more magic you're going to be able to do and the more things you're going to be able to buy but the harder the game will be because you start more powerful that doesn't sound right but the more powerful you are the less time you have to finish the quest see basically the game is timed there's uh, something called a threat tracker that you use to keep track of how much time you left um, once the threat reaches 50, the game ends. The starting value of the threat level depends on the heroes you start with. Each hero has a cost something like between 8 and 12, and you can choose which heroes you use and how many. And their total cost is the starting threat level. Because that's why I said the more heroes you have, the harder it is. You basically got less time to finish the game. That threat tracker um, moves up one space after each uh, game round so you really do have a limited number of turns and finally the game brings about a uh, about hundred tokens there's forty damage tokens which you're going to use to keep track of how much damage your characters and the monsters have taken as they fight there's progress tokens which are put on the quest spaces and on locations you explore to keep track of how much you've explored them and how much more you have to go before you're done and you have resource tokens you get a few each turn, one per hero you control, and they're basically used to buy the cards that you have in your hand. So next I want to tell you what a game turn is like, but before I do that, let me describe the character cards. Um, they each have a willpower rating, which is used when you're questing and exploring an area. It's applied directly to that. They also have an attack strength, a defen defense value, and a number of hit points. And a lot of them also have special abilities and stuff on the card text. Um, okay, but I really want to let you know about those th four attributes. So a turn has seven phases. Some are shorter than others. The first is a resource phase where you ready any cards that you had used last turn. That basically means turn them from a sideways position to back back to upright, and they're available to use again. And you also put a uh, resource tokens on uh, each of your heroes. The next phase. Oh, and also you draw a card into your hand. The next phase is planning, where you can buy cards from your hand and play them in front of you. Um, after that is a quest phase, where you assign some of your heroes to the quest, you turn them sideways to show you're using them, you add up all their willpower points, and then you, ch you try and do the quest. The first thing you'll do is you turn over another event card from the event deck, and if it's a hero monster location, you play it, you play it in the staging area, which will contain other cards you've other event cards you've drawn. So then you add up the total threat value of all the location and monster cards in that staging area against your willpower. If your willpower is higher, higher, you've successfully quested. If it's the same, nothing happens. If it's lower, you take damage. Um, when it's higher and you successfully quested, you've add you add counters to the location or the quest card you're ex currently exploring.
and that's it for the quest phase. Next is travel phase. If you aren't currently exploring a location, you could take a location card from the staging area and put it in in front of the quest card. This basically means that location is no longer going to be a threat to you. It makes it questing a little bit easier, and it also has some locations that have some effect when you when you move it into that when you travel to that card. Sometimes they're good, sometimes they're bad. But the most important thing generally is you're getting it in out of the staging area. After that is the encounter phase. You might have to fight or choose to fight some of the monsters in the staging area. And when you do that, again, those are taken out of the staging area, so that's going to lower your threat level for subsequent turns. The fighting is a Vago Hugo sort of thing. First the monsters attack you. And you can choose to block it with your creatures. They'll take damage if, if they've been hit harder than the, their defense value. Or if they don't, your threat level goes up for whatever damage those creatures attacking you did. And then your mon your cre your characters could choose to attack the creatures and hopefully kill them. After that is a let me see those. Well, I just described two phases: the encounter and combat phases. There's a couple things that happen in there that I'm not going to get into the details of. And finally, the refresh. Okay, at the end of the turn, you, you untap your cards, not at the beginning. But now, you, you refresh and you raise your threat level by one. So that's the turn. Let me go over it again real quick. First is the resource phase where you're going to draw a card and get resource tokens. And then the planning phase where you're going to play cards by spending resource tokens. Then you're going to quest to either defeat the current location you're at or the quest card then you can choose to travel to a location that's in the staging area to get it out of there in order to make questing easier then you have your encounters with creatures which again could lower your your threat level and make questing easier then you fight the creatures and then you untap and raise your threat level and that's a whole round so that's basically the game what gives it complexity and replayability is all the text on the cards. If you've played a CCG or LCG before, you know what I'm talking about. If not, each card basically has text that describes what it does in the game. Um, a lot of them are pretty unique. They might let you power up cards and make your heroes more powerful. They might let you draw extra cards. They might affect certain types of cards that you have. Or encounter cards I've been calling them event cards but the the cards you draw from and put in the staging area are called encounter cards not event cards um they might let you look through your discard pile they might do direct damage and it's just a lot of variability every time you play the game you won't actually use all the cards the hero cards and player cards come in four suits which in this game are called spheres the spheres are leadership, lore, spirit, and tactics, and they each play a little bit differently. The, the leadership sphere tends to help get your characters ready, it has more characters in it. A lot of the effects in the, those cards are related to characters specifically. The lore sphere has a lot of healing cards and cards that let you draw more cards. The spirit sphere um, does a lot of things with the discard pile, let you interact with that. It deals with locations and quests. For example, it might let you swap the current location card with another location card you haven't been to, or it might let you do some extra 
put some extra questing points in a location. Um, it also lets you move some cards around. For example, trade cards with your opponent, your not opponent, but your uh, teammate, I guess. The fourth sphere is called Tactics, which has a lot of combat cards and car and character cards, a lot of equipment that'll help your characters in combat. The when you when you try and play a card, you have to use resource tokens from a hero of a matching sphere. So if you play if all your cards are from one sphere, you can always play all the cards. If you try and mix two, mix two or more spheres together, you you have to be careful which cards you're pulling the resource which hero you're pulling the resources from. It, it makes it a little harder, but you tend to have a more powerful hand because you got a lot more variety in the sort of things you can do. The first time you play, the rules recommend you stick to one sphere. Uh, it makes it easier for you. And I decided to go with a tactic sphere, and that was a bad idea because with the tactic cards, you could find you get stuck where you really can't explore locations. Your your threat level might go up to seven or eight because there's a lot of location cards on the table, and there is no way for you to quest and do that much exploration every turn. You just end up going down a slippery slope where you're losing a few rounds. So when you play a game, you'll get to choose what cards you're gonna have in your starting deck. You know, you could go with that simple one-color solution that's offered in the book, or you can make a custom deck to suit your your play style, or just try something you think might be fun or interesting. And probably will be better than uh, than one of the simple one-color decks. So not only do you get to choose what cards you're gonna have in your deck when you go to play a game, you also get to choose what scenario you're gonna be playing. The the game has three scenarios and those are the three quest decks I talked about. The the first one is easier than there's one that they have difficulty levels. The first is a one, the second is a four, and the third is a difficulty seven. The not only are three quest cards different, but you also have different cards in your uh encounter deck. So it'll change not only the, the difficulty but the style of the of that game. Earlier I mentioned there's expansions for the game already planned. As a matter of fact, the first one will be released, I think, July 24th. Uh, it's the Search for Golem. Each of the expansion packs is going to have more player cards, uh, maybe heroes, and a n I think one new quest. Maybe more, but I don't, I don't know that that is true yet. Along with that new quest will come some new encounter cards for the quest. I think the big question for this is how long will the game be fun before it starts getting stale? It's hard to say. There's there's a lot of variability in what's in the box already and the expansions have the potential for a lot more interesting fun. At least you'll get to try new adventures and play against new cards. But I think this game is going to suffer because it's a cooperative game. One, one of the things that makes a, a CCG a lot of fun is playing against a, a friend or somebody you've never met and just being surprised by some really cool combination used against you. As long as you don't have an opponent, you're not going to get to see those things happen. And you know, it's actually kind of fun to get beat by some really impressive combination or even just expensive cards, I guess. I'm looking forward to playing more with this game. I definitely look. For, I've only tried two of the spheres so far. I look forward to seeing what the other two are like and how they play. And I look forward to trying to come up with my own set of cards and see what I like. I've only played one scenario so far. 
I've only gone through that with two different spheres, and I look forward to trying it with the other spheres just to see how they play, and then eventually get into the other scenarios and just seeing how challenging they are and how they work against the decks I've already come up with. So I do think the game the game will be good for a while. Um, it's definitely worth it for the price, which I paid I think thirty dollars. Um, I ordered it online. However, the retail price is uh, $39.95. If you think this game sounds interesting to you, it's worth checking out the uh, Fantasy Flight's product page on the game. In the support section, there's a video tutorial that does a really good job of showing you how to play the game and showing you the artwork. So that does it for this show. Next time I'm going to be talking about games designed for one or more player. These are competitive games that could be played solitary because you're generally trying to get a, beat your high score. I think I'm going to talk about Luna. It was published in the US by Z-Man Games. It was nominated for the Jogo do Año Award in Portugal. And though not nominated for an award in the Spiel des Jahres, it is on their recommended list for this year. And finally, I just think it looks really neat. Well, that's the end of today's episode. If you would like to contact me, you can find me as Fractaloon on BoardGameGeek, or you can email me at OnePlayerAlbert at gmail.com. The intro music is copyright Angus and is protected by a Creative Commons license. The song and copyright information can be found at gemendo.com. Thanks for listening.